Well, I do thank you for your kind words and, and the prayer, and I'm thankful I'm not sick today, and I'm thankful that I can be with you. We've enjoyed the uh, two or three times now, I guess it is, that we've been able to join you for, for the worship of our God together and the study of his word together. And uh, I just want to let you know at the beginning, it seems like each time I've been here, I've given a disclaimer before I've preached. And then afterwards, I just skedaddle. But uh, I, I do want to let you know, this is not going to be maybe the traditional Christmas message. However, I am talking about Jesus. There's a lot of themes here that have to do with Christmas. But I, I hope that you will indulge me as I, as I preach God's word from Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be studying verses 1 through 10 together this morning, and, and you'll probably be familiar with some of these, these words, though maybe not in the context that I'm going to be speaking from this morning, and really encourage you to consider God's grace um, in terms of and in the context of His power on behalf of sinners. Sometimes we think of grace as uh, God uh, giving undeserved blessing to sinners. I want to encourage you maybe as we study His Word together to think about his power on behalf of sinners in our salvation. So if you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read those to begin this message. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You might be familiar with J. Vernon McGee. He's kind of a famous, popular Bible teacher who was featured on the Through the Bible radio broadcast, if anybody still uses a radio anymore. Uh, I assume you can find podcasts now. He, he tells a story that you might have heard before as well because it's so humorous. He said, right before World War II, the city of Pasadena, California, was having its annual Tournament of Roses parade. Many floats were entered in the parade. The float that was entered by the Standard Oil Company was covered with American Beauty roses. It was a sight to behold. 
The theme of the parade was, be prepared. But right in the middle of the parade, the Standard Oil Company's float ran out of gas. <laughs> it stopped right where I, Javon McGee, was viewing the parade. I couldn't help but laugh. If there was one float that shouldn't have run out of gas, it was that one. Standard Oil Company ought to have plenty of gas. But as I looked at the float, I saw a picture of many Christians today. They're beautiful on the outside, but they have no power in their lives. Now think about it. If the Standard Oil Company shouldn't run out of gas, then surely Christians who know the eternal God shouldn't run out of power in their lives. Yet many of us may do that simply because we don't understand the greatness of, God, of God's power which is available to us and at work in us. So if I were to ask you this morning, don't, don't answer out loud, if I were to ask you this morning, how many of you feel like you're living in God's power? That your life showcases the powerful work of God? How many of us say, oh yeah, that's me? Maybe another question, more of us might answer in the affirmative here, how many of us feel like we're running on empty? Well, that seems to be a, a concern that the Apostle Paul had for the believers in the churches in the region of Ephesus when he penned this letter, the book of Ephesians. Right before the verses we're going to study together, Paul shared his prayer for the Christians and the congregations that he was writing to. So if you wouldn't mind, just look back to verse 16 of chapter 1. Paul's going to say, here's my prayer for you. He says, I don't cease to give thanks for you. I remember you in my prayers. Here's what he prays. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then, watch this, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Do you hear his, his prayer request on behalf of these Christians? He's asking that the Holy Spirit would reveal to the eyes of their heart, give them spiritual understanding regarding the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards those of us who are believers. We need to understand the greatness of God's power because it fuels our confidence in his plans, the intensity of our worship, our endurance in the faith, our victory over Satan's schemes, and even over our own fleshly desires. If we don't understand the greatness of God's power towards those of us who believe, we might not make use of it and run out of gas in the Christian life. So following his prayer that believers would understand the greatness of God's power, Paul's going to give two examples that highlights God's power which is available to believers. One example is the power of God seen in the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus to the Father's right hand. 
So again, just look at verse 20. I want you to know the greatness of God's power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, all rule in authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. So he says, I'm praying for you that you would get this. The power of God towards you who believe. Here's one example of that. Look at Christ. He came. He lived. He died. And God the Father raised him from the dead and exalted him to the highest place. Amen? What, what great power. What, what a display of God's great power. But that's not the only example of God's great power that we can look to to give us confidence, to give us endurance in the Christian life. That same power that God worked in raising Jesus from the dead and exalting him to his right hand, that same power is at work in the lives of those of us who believe. So Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 give us the second example of God's power at work. God's power in our salvation. How do we see the greatness of God's power in our salvation? Well, that's what we're going to look at in our study. We can see the greatness of God's power in our salvation when we look at it from three perspectives in these ten verses. If you want to write this down, this will help you follow with me. The first perspective that we're going to look at is in verses 1 through 3, and that's our powerless condition before God saved us. Our powerless condition before God saved us. The second perspective, the power of God displayed when he saved us, verses 4 through 7, the power of God when he saved us. And then the third perspective, our life after God's power has saved us, and that's in verses 8 through 10. So in other words, we need to look at from the perspective of before, during, and after our salvation to fully appreciate God's power in it. That's the progression we find in these 10 verses, and that's how we're going to study it together. So to look at God's great power in our salvation. Let's look first from the perspective of before. What was our condition before God saved us? And that's what verses 1 through 3 describe. Verses 1 through 3 describe our powerless condition before God saved us. Let me just read these not Christmas-like verses again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of, dis of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." 
If you really want to grasp the greatness of God's power in your salvation, you need to understand what he saved you from. Who you were before he saved you. And the way God describes you before he saved you, or you if you're not saved, is dead. You're dead. Now, death here means separation. So when the spirit is separated from the body, physical death occurs, right? But here, God is saying that when you physically are born into this world, you are born spiritually dead. Your spirit is separated from God. Paul would later say it this way in Ephesians 4.18. Just jot it down. You can see it later. Talking about unbelievers, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, separated from the life of God. That's true of us apart from Christ. We're born with a sinful nature when we come into this world. We're separated from God. That's one of the reasons why Jesus, in coming to earth, had to be born of a virgin, right? So that that sinful nature wouldn't be passed on to him. He bypassed that spiritual death coming into the world. But for the rest of us, that's not the case. We're born dead spiritually, separated from God. And if you are spiritually dead, let me ask you an obvious question. What power do you possess to do anything about it? Now, my, my brother here just introduced me. I'm a hospice chaplain, and just recently, the last 10 days or so, I, I was in the room as somebody uh, departed. They died. And, and you look at this now body, lifeless body, and, and where before maybe you would touch, and there might be some kind of a response, maybe the eyes, the, the eyebrows. And now the, the breath is gone and you, you touch. There's no response. No, no power to respond. No power to do anything about it. And God wants us to understand, apart from Christ, that's us spiritually. That's why you don't respond to God's word. That's why you don't value God's church. That's why you don't seek God's greatness. You, apart from Christ, are dead. Now, in saying we're dead, that doesn't mean we, we don't do anything. Obviously, we do. We live out that separation from God. And principally, Paul wants us to see there, there's three sources that drive how we live which show forth that dead spiritual condition we live in, that, that powerless condition we're in as sinners. He says, you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, first source, following the course of this world. In other words, this is how you walk, this was your lifestyle, this was what you conformed to. One source that you conformed to was the world, the world around you. In other words, our, our preferences, our attitudes, our habits weren't conforming to God's standard or his will, but conforming to the standards of this world. 
that system of values and philosophy of life that is opposed to God. Just a few examples of, of the course of the world. It might be this. Uh, people have said, if it feels good, do it. That's worldly thinking. We follow that kind of thinking when we are spiritually dead. We have no regard for God. We just say, hey, if it feels good, do it. Or maybe you've had somebody tell you this. You have your truth, I have mine. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. Everybody, you know, Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. That's worldly thinking. Or how about Burger King, which I love a Whopper. It hurts me to say this. What's their motto? Have it your way. And I will have my Whopper my way, but spiritually dead, sinning against God, that's no way to live. What is it that shapes your thinking and your attitudes? Right? Think, think about even in terms of marriage, we see more divorces and people, like, they just didn't make me happy. I'm not happy anymore. What, what shapes that thinking? That's not God. It's the world. The world around us. Whatever makes you happy. So that's one source that drives how we live in that spiritually powerless, that dead condition apart from Christ. The second source that he names here at the end of verse 2, we, we follow, we give into, we conform to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, now who's he talking about? Who is the spirit? Who is the prince of the power of the air? It's Satan. It's Satan. Paul acknowledges the devil's a powerful supernatural being who rules over other evil spirits and, and even influences those who are spiritually dead. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, the devil is referred to as the God of this world, right? Ultimately, he, he is the one. He is the, the spiritual being who stands behind that worldly thinking we were just talking about. He's the one that promotes that. What, what was the cause of his being, who we now know as Satan, banished from heaven and destined for the wrath of God? What happened? He, he didn't want to honor God. He wanted his own glory. And he promotes that, that thinking through the world around us. Now, you might not be thinking consciously when you're living in sin, boy, I really want to follow Satan today. But if you're not seeking to live for the glory of God in conformity to his will, by default, you are obeying the devil. You are ruled by his power. And what power do you have to overcome it? You're dead. Now, let's be careful. I've, I've used the word powerless. I've talked about the world around us. I've talked about Satan. So, so does this... Is this just saying that, boy, I just, there's nothing I could do. I was just carried along. Was, was it involuntary that I walked according to the world or in the power of Satan? No. No, you walk according to the course of the world and you follow Satan because you want to. That's what verse 3 says. We all once lived among the sons of disobedience. How? In the passions of our flesh, carrying out whose desires? Our desires. 
the desires of the body and the mind. In other words, the reason the, the world system was appealing, the reason that it was so easy to follow Satan is because you wanted to. What, what does the flesh crave? By the way, flesh meaning here not like flesh and blood, but flesh in terms of your sinful nature, the, those sinful, selfish desires that reside in each one of us. What does that crave? It craves my way. <laughs> it craves what I, what I want, when I want it, how I want it. It craves Burger King, right? <laughs> All right to eat Burger King, by the way. This is, I'm just saying that for my own conscience. So I'm going back there. But we do. We all have to recognize. We have a self-centered human nature that we will seek to gratify apart from the power of God in our salvation. Now, I, I want to be careful with this as well because we might think of this depiction of the, the spiritually dead sinner. We might think of like Hitler or a drug dealer. Let, let's be careful here. Even good, in quotes, you know, good according to their culture, moral people, apart from Christ, are spiritually dead. People who are conservative and have family values are still spiritually dead. They may do good things, but they're still dead. Here's an example of that. I was at Panera yesterday, not Burger King, I was at Panera in, in Belton where I live, and um, they have a bunch of delicious bagels. And there's a sign right above the bagels that says, um, every night we donate all of the basically unused bagels to charity. Now, is that a good thing for them to do? I would be glad to be a part of that charity that they donate to. It's delicious. That's a good thing to do. But let me ask you a question. Why I put the sign there? So that you will see it and think highly of who? Them. <laughs> and so even if you are a quote-unquote good moral person, what drives what you do in the flesh? Me looking good. Look at what I've done. Look at me. You have no regard. You are dead to God. You have no desire to glorify Him. It's about you. So, so listen, you may not have sold drugs. You may not have hopped around at the bars. You may have come to Christ at a young age, but you, are a, you were a despicable, powerless sinner. Even as a child, you wouldn't share your toys. You wouldn't listen to your parents unless there was a bad consequence, right? It wasn't because you respected their authority. It was because you didn't want to sit in time out or get a spanking, right? All of us in this room, no matter what degree of evil we have been involved with, all of us dead to God and powerless to do anything about it without any regard for his glory or any desire to serve him. Our desire was for ourselves. And notice, because that's true of all of us, that, that's, listen, that's true of the Democrat and the Republican alike. That's true of all of us. So notice the fate we all deserve. The end of verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Hitler, Bin Laden, Pelosi, Justin Locke. 
Now, I'm not making a joke or a political statement. You are due the wrath of God the same as them. Every last one of us, all ethnicities, all political beliefs, you are a child of the wrath of God. You are, the target is on your back. You will pay for your sin because you have offended a holy God who made you and rules over you and you have no regard for him. You only care about what your flesh wants, which is opposed to him. And so what you deserve and what I deserve, what Justin Locke deserves, if God gives it to me, is eternity in hell. And I am dead to do anything about it. What are you going to do about it? You're dead. You have no power. Which is why the first two words of verse 4 ought to be sweet to your soul. One way to know if you're spiritually dead or if you're spiritually alive today and and whether you're separated from God or, or in fellowship with God is whether or not these two words make your heart sore. If if they just kind of, well, whatever. If you're not concerned about this description we've just read, you're probably spiritually dead. But if these two words in verse 4, but God, if, if those make your heart sore, give you hope, that's a good sign. That There's a response there. You're not dead. But God, there is some real hope in that hopeless, powerless description. There is some real hope and there is some real power. That leads to the second perspective we see in this passage in verses 4 through 7. We see the power of God displayed when he saved us. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, I want you to see the main statement of this whole Passage. This is the point the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate. Here is the display of God's power that you need to understand because it's at work in your life still. The main point of the whole thing, God made us alive in Christ, raised us and seated us with him in the heavenly places. That's the main point. As he physically resurrected Christ and seated him at his right hand, So now we who are united to Christ have been spiritually resurrected, raised, and seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Now just consider this. Meditate on this for just a moment. After the description we just read, I mean, how low was that description? How low was that position we were in? Targets of the furious wrath of God in hell for eternity. That's as low as it gets. To now, due to the power of God and the power of God alone, you are alive and you are seated where? 
the right, you are exalted with Christ. You went from the lowest of low to the highest of highs. That's your position if, if you are in Christ today. What great power, what great power does that display? God's. He makes the dead come alive in Christ. He gives those who deserve nothing but his wrath a spot in Christ of highest privilege, highest exaltation, enjoying the highest majesty for all eternity. That's where you are today if you're in Christ. That's the power at work in you today if you are in Christ. That's why Paul had earlier stated in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How many spiritual blessings do you lack in Christ? None. What power in terms of salvation, in terms of living out a Christ-like life, what power do you lack? None. Because you're alive in Christ, because you're seated with Christ today. That's quite a reversal, isn't it? Dead to alive. Just going away in sin to being raised to the highest spiritual position possible. And it makes me just ask the question, why would God do that? <laughs> why would God do that for me? Did he look at Justin Locke and go, oh, I see something good in him. I, I think I'll give him spiritual life in Christ. No. He saw me living for my glory under the rule of Satan, according to the world around me. He said, I'm going to make you alive in Christ. Here's why. Back to verse 4. God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. So this is a Christmas sermon. We lit the, the Advent candle for love, right? One reason that God has decided to save some who are powerless to save their, themselves is because he loves. Not because he saw something in us that promoted or provoked within him a loving response. No, but because, as we read earlier, God himself is love. He certainly is, is just and righteous. That is why he will pour out his wrath on some, and that will, be, that will be a right and good thing for God to do. But because he is love, he will save some from his wrath. And he will make them alive, and he will seat them with Christ to display his great mercy, his great love, his great grace. That really leads us to the second reason why God would do this. To show his grace for his glory. Look at verse 7. 
Here's a purpose statement. Why did God make us alive with Christ, raise us with him, seed us with him? Verse 7 says the reason why. So that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God exercised his power in saving us for the sake of his own glory, his own praise. You and I, who are made alive in Christ by God's loving, gracious power, will serve for all eternity as showcases of his grace and his kindness. And that display will fuel the intensity of our worship and the praise of his name, starting now and resounding through all eternity. All eternity will be filled with the praise. It won't be enough time to fit all the praise of God because of that display of his power in saving dead sinners, making them alive in Christ. And I just want you to get this. We tend to have, this is part of our flesh, we tend to have a higher view of ourselves than we should and a lower view of God than we should. So we think sometimes that salvation is about making much of me when in reality salvation is about making much of God. So I want you to see that that really is the point, not only from verse 7, but in all of Ephesians. Go back to Ephesians 6, 1, 6, pardon me, chapter 1, verse 6. It's talking about God's adoption of us as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Verse 6, why did he do it? To the praise of his glorious grace. Down to verse 12. We've obtained an inheritance Why did God do this? So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his what? Glory. Verse 14. We have the Holy Spirit. He's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. For what purpose? To the praise of his glory. I'm almost done, but not quite. Verse Chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. And I've just given you just the highlights here. There's a lot more that could be said, even just from Ephesians, let alone the rest of the Bible. Chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, right? That's what we're talking about. Verse 21. To him be what? Glory. In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What's the point? God's glory. When God takes dead people who are powerless and makes them alive solely by his power and his grace, who gets the glory? God does. For how long? Just while we're in church? For eternity. It drives me nuts. Can I just, this is a pet peeve of mine. I go to a lot of funerals as a hospice chaplain. I hear people talking about heaven like Uncle Jack is up there chasing the women. Seriously? In the presence of the God of this great love, And grace, who makes powerless sinners alive by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone? You're telling me instead of praising God for his greatness, we're going to be chasing? No, heaven's not about an extended 
enjoyment of golf or fishing or retirement, or, or it's not about an enjoyment of earthly things without pain or death. That's not what heaven is about. That's not what eternity is about. Eternity is about seeing his glorious grace and giving him all the praise and glory for it. Because you recognized, if you are in Christ, if you will be in heaven, you recognize who you were. What did you do to make yourself come alive in Christ? And why did he make you come alive in Christ? Was it because of something in you? No, it's because he's gracious. <laughs> to him be the glory in the church now and through all eternity. You should want that. Here's some people, they have, they have trouble with God's desire to be glorified. It's right for God to be glorified. He alone is glory us. It would be unrighteous if God were to say, no, don't glorify me, I'm not glorious. That'd be unrighteous, be unholy. Our attitude should be, I, you know what? I, I cannot wait in this life, and I can't wait for the age to come to give God the praise and enjoy his greatness for all eternity. That should be our attitude if we're spiritually alive in Christ. If I have a, a problem with that, that, that may be an indication that I'm actually dead to God. I'm, I'm separated. I don't have any regard. I don't understand. So, I'm coming to the last point now, the third perspective. We viewed God's power in our salvation from the perspective of our powerless condition before he saved us, the power he displayed when he saved us, and now what? What happens after he saves us? Is the, the power all over? Is there no continuing Obviously not. There are continuing results. His power is still at work in us. So the third perspective in verses 8 through 10 is this. Our life after God's power has saved us. Verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now these are beautiful verses, aren't they? These, these are verses that are rightly quoted when explaining the nature of salvation. It is by God's grace alone, received by faith alone in Christ alone. Salvation is accomplished by God's power, not our works. It's a gift we cannot earn, but we simply receive it by faith, trusting in what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, submitting to him as our Lord. Amen? You with me? So God is due all the credit, right? How many times does he have to say, it's not your own doing, not a result, you didn't do this, you didn't do it, right? Over and over. God is due all the credit because we were dead, he made us alive. And so, that has a couple of ongoing results in our lives after he saves us by his power. The first result that we're going to look at is a changed attitude. If you're saved by the power of God, 
in Christ, you will have a changed attitude. How about the end of verse 9? God saved you this way by his grace, not by your works. Why? So that no one may what? Boast. He's talking about attitude, right? Can I say, look at me? No. There won't be a soul in heaven that says, man, look what I did. Nobody's going up to Jesus, putting their arm around. Look what we did, the two of us. No, you know what our attitude is now? That If we're saved by grace through faith. I did nothing. He did everything. <laughs> I contributed nothing. I did all the sinning. God did all the saving. I am humble and dependent upon God's grace. There's nothing that I could boast about spiritually. And that means that ought to have an impact on our attitude, especially as it relates to self-righteousness, right? What is self-righteousness? Self-righteousness is looking at ourselves and going, I'm pretty darn, pretty darn good, doing all right. That's the problem the Pharisees had. And Jesus told a really a piercing parable uh, to the Pharisees, excuse me, a piercing parable to the Pharisees that illustrated the, the kind of change in attitude that would take place if they were humble and dependent on the grace of God. This is in Luke chapter 18. I'll just read it to you. Uh, verses 9 through 14 of Luke 18. It says, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, this is the contrast. That's wrong attitude if you're saved by grace. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See the change in attitude? If you understand your powerless condition as a sinner and you understand the, the power of God, his grace on your behalf in saving you, you're not going to be self-righteous. You're not going to look at other people like, boy, they should just be more like me. We have a changed attitude. We deserve wrath like everyone else. Oh, but by his grace, we are saved. So that's one result of understanding God's power in our salvation. It's a, a change in attitude. And then second, there's going to be a change in our lifestyle. Did you notice how these 10 verses kind of began and ended with the same word? It's actually at the start of verse 2. You used to walk according to the world. Now in verse 10... God prepared beforehand good works that we should what? Walk in them. 
So walking, talking about our, that's an image for our lifestyle. Our lifestyle used to be this way when we were dead. But now that we have been made alive in Christ by the power of God, our lifestyle should be this way. There's a change. You see it, right? We now live in the good works that God has prepared for us when he saved us. And it's just helpful to clarify. I feel like you always get to say this. We are not saved by good works. You get that. But we are saved to do good works. It's God's power at work in us after he saves us from his wrath. But even those good works we perform, we can't take credit for them because it's due to the fact that we are whose workmanship. Verse 10, we are whose? God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. Who did the creating? Did you do it? God did it. So even the good works that we walk in, that, that characterize our lifestyle as believers, we're, we're still imperfect. It's a work in progress, right? But those good works that we do walk in, even those find their source in God, not in us. They are by his grace, not by our own flesh. So even the, the changed lifestyle that we lead has its source in God's power. It's still a, a display of his power in our lives. You may ask, well, what good works does God want me to walk in by his power? Well, the good news is Ephesians chapter 4 through chapter 6 are all about that. And I will let you read that this afternoon. In fact, I'd encourage you to read all six chapters. You can get them in in about 20 to 30 minutes, which gives you ample time to get Burger King and watch the Chiefs game later. So read Ephesians. It'll be a blessing to your soul. But let me just point out some of the highlights of these good works that we can now walk in by the power of God. Chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What's that look like? Verse 2, with all humility, right? Not self-righteousness, humility. That's our attitude. And gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. That's, that's a good work God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in. Walk in unity with other believers. You're united to Christ. You're seated with him Together, you're his body. Walk it out. Another sample, go down to verse 22 of that same chapter. God tells us to put off our old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. You remember that life, being dead and powerless? Put that off and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jump down to verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. How about verse 22, wives, uh-oh, Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. 
Verse 10 of chapter 6, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There it is. There's the good works. Now go do it. Again, we're not expecting perfection in that, are we? But having been made alive by the power of God in Christ, that same power which raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to the right hand of the Father, that same power is at work in you so that you do what we just read. So don't run out of gas. (laughs) You have the power of God working in you to live in such a way that the people around you would see Christ-likeness. And so let me just, let me just say in, in conclusion, you don't lack any power that you need to live this Christian life out, to overcome our enemy, Satan, to overcome our own fleshly desires. You don't lack any power that you need to walk in the good works God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in. Keep going. Don't run out of gas. When it comes to the power of God seen in our salvation, we see the greatness of his power that continues to work in us today. So we must receive it by faith, walk in those good works we just discussed, And as we do, our lives will showcase the gracious power of God in this age and for all eternity to the praise of whose glory? God's. God, we do give you praise for this awesome grace, this awesome power that we have just studied. And Father, I pray that the intensity of our worship would only be fueled. The the intensity of our fight against our enemy would only be fueled. The the intensity of our, our passion against our own fleshly desires, the intensity of our confidence in your plans moving forward, I pray that that would all be fueled by this display of power we've just seen. And I ask, Father, if there's any here this morning who are still dead, They don't have this power. They can't walk out those good works because they don't, they're not alive. I pray that you would grant them repentance from that deadness, that you would grant them faith, and that by your grace, you would make them alive in Christ today. And for those of us who are alive, who are a part of the body of Jesus Christ in the world today, may we live out that power in such a way that others take notice and give you all the glory. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.